It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Are you someone who suffers from caregiver burnout? Caregivers of all kinds frequently exhaust themselves in the service of others. Today's special guest, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, teaches helpers a seven-step process to slow down and reconnect with the stillness within themselves, the stillness that Dr. Oxhandler calls the sacred spark, which is the seat of the soul. By allowing themselves to exist in that stillness for a time, caregivers will come to understand that they, too, are worthy of care. Today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Holly's book, The Soul of the Helper, Seven Strategies to seeing the sacred within yourself so you can see it in others. Um, Holly Oxhandler, Ph.D., LMSW, is an associate professor and associate dean for research and faculty development at Baylor University's Diana R. Garland Scolo, uh, School of Social Work, where she focuses on the intersection of spirituality and health. Very interesting. She has written extensively for top professional journals within social work and psychology, and her research has been featured in several publications. She's also the co-host of the weekly podcast, CXMH, a podcast on faith and mental health. Good morning, Holly, and welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you so much for having me on your show this morning. It is my pleasure. Would you prefer I call you Dr. Holly or is Holly okay? Holly's okay. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, So what prompted you to write this book, The Soul of the Helper? Yeah. Well, this book has been, um, I like to think that it's been kind of in the works for a little over a decade um, in the ways in which I have been uh, studying and interested in and passionate about this intersection of spirituality and mental health. Um, I have been doing research looking at uh, mental health care providers, uh, the degree to which they integrate their client space into mental health treatment and um, kind of what ignites them to, to, to want to do that, including training or their own experiences at this intersection um, and more. And as I did more and more of this research, I began to recognize ways in which um, the findings, they're not just relevant for mental health care providers, but they're truly relevant for everyday helpers, whether that's uh, teachers or parents or um, or mental health care providers or faith leaders or health care providers or nurses or, you know, on and on, this long list of different helpers. Um, I really got to this point at which I could no longer not uh, write this book because it just felt like this this research really was relevant 
for these everyday helpers as they go out and serve others. Um, so that's kind of a little bit what prompted me to write it, just that that strong urge. I could no longer not write it after what I had been learning um, over the years. Okay. And did you do like a scientific study with statistics or um, how did you go about gathering that information? Yeah, absolutely. So I have done um, some national surveys of uh, clinical social workers. I've done surveys of um, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, nurses and counselors uh, and more. And we, what we were doing was really trying to see, you know, what um, is leading these mental health care providers to ask about and integrate their clients' spirituality and treatment. And the reason we did this was because, one, we know that from the, the data from other studies that have been done, that when you ethically and effectively integrate client spirituality into mental health treatment, they oftentimes get better faster. And so it's really important for these providers to be thinking about this area of clients' lives from that perspective, but also because we see that clients want to talk about their faith as it relates to their mental health treatment. Um, we know that a majority of U.S. adults consider themselves to be uh, religious or spiritual, and we know that over 80% of us will meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness at some point in our lives, um, either by Young adulthood is what we've seen for one study and middle age in another. And so, um, so this area of, of clients' lives is so important. Um, and again, not just the, the area of their spirituality, but also the area of mental health for, for so many of us. Um, and this intersection is just something that we really need to be paying better attention to. Um, so these surveys were asking these providers, you know, what are your views about integrating client faith? You know, what are you actually doing when it comes to talking about their faith in um, mental health treatment? And we found that um, these, we found that the top predictor of uh, these providers' integration of their client faith was actually how motivated they were to live out their own faith. Um, or their own, uh, you know, their own religiosity or spirituality. That was the top predictor with their training in this area being the second predictor. Um, so that finding really reoriented me and, and really um, shifted quite a bit within me and in my research that ultimately, again, kind of led to this book in recognizing the importance of our own um, inner landscape as we go out and serve others. It is so important. And, you know, I realized that I do that quite often in my work. I'm a coach and I work with narcissistic abuse um, survivors. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't often introduce it right away. I have to, I try to feel out the situation because some people just really like put up a wall when they hear something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are times where I feel like it's best to discuss a bigger picture and the bigger picture would be spirituality and what the purpose of the meaning of life and why we're here and why things happen, I think is very important to talk about. And you're right. Those who accept that information, 
uh, and really digest it, really, you know, soak it up, um, do heal very quickly. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that you integrate that into the work that you do. And um, and it is, it, it is something that, that, you know, we see it, it does help these clients, but something that you, that I want to just piggyback on that you had just mentioned and that I talk about in this book is that, you know, our religion and spirituality, it is complex and nuanced and layered. And there are ways in which um, we may lean on it to cope in positive ways throughout our journey, and it may be a source of healing. Um, but we also know that for some folks, it can be a source of pain and harm and difficulty. And so, again, for those mental health care providers to recognize that that it is layered and complex, and we want to include it um, as part of that holistic healing um, and recognize it's a, it's a part of, of clients and their journeys is where I think it's just so important for us to be paying attention to. But if we can get to that point where it becomes a source of comfort and healing and we can lean on a higher power, um, that, you know, that's certainly, we certainly see that in the data that that can have a positive impact on a variety of clinical issues. Yes, that, that's very true. Uh, I, you know, I usually try to meet people where they are. And so, you know, at some point in the treatment, I will ask them what their views are. Are they spiritual? Are they religious? You know, what, um, what do they believe in? What fulfills them? And then sort of gear it in that direction to, to where they are, because I can't put my beliefs on everybody else. It's very nice when someone is in sync with my beliefs um, and I can really go off and tell them that what I believe. But, um, but yes, it's not always like that. But I have had clients who say, I don't believe in any of that. You know, this is it. This is all there is. And I said, okay, well, that's, you know, that's fine. We can, we can work from that point of view. Um, there's a quote in here that I really like and you said, Franciscan teacher Richard Rohr notes, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it, usually to those closest to us, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and invariably the most vulnerable, our children. I really, really like this quote. I think that's really important to note that um, we do have to transform our pain. Many people believe that if they just stuff it, you know, don't heal it, that they can sort of gloss over it and others will not pick up on it. But that's not true, is it, Holly? No. Yeah, I think I really love that you elevated that quote within um, the book. I, it's one that I've returned to a, a couple or a few times within the book um, because I do want these helpers around us to recognize the urgency of tending to their inner landscape, of recognizing that what is happening within them, it comes out in the ways that they serve others. Again, whether that's their clients or their patients or serving their family members, including their kiddos. Um, and you're right that, you know, there's there are a lot of ways in which we can stuff and um, suppress and repress and, you know, just kind of push aside all of those 
those pains and difficulties and layers of trauma that we may have experienced throughout our lives. But if we are not compassionately and gently tending to those areas of our lives, we do risk imposing them on others. Um, and and trans you know transmitting it projecting it um you know and you know and pushing it out onto those around us um and there are really sneaky ways that it can come out where you know i write at one point in there about the ways in which uh we as helpers may be working out maybe some of our programs for happiness that father uh, thomas keating writes about which include affection and esteem and power and control um, and security and survival. And there are ways that, you know, we may be subconsciously trying to achieve those things or hustle for those things in our efforts to serve. But in doing that, we're really at risk of hurting those around us. So just going back to that, that Richard Rohr quote, I mean, it is just, a real strong call for our us as helpers to be paying attention to and tending to our inner landscapes as we go out and serve others. Right. And I think that if, if, if you're a helper, excuse me, and, um, and you don't tend to yourself, you don't heal um, your wounds, your past wounds, um, that you burn out very quickly. And, you know, people mm-hmm. will say to me, because the work that I do is, you know, I work with trauma all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. And people who come to me are in really bad shape, and people say, how do you do this? I do it because I'm healed. That's why. I'm healed. I have my own spiritual practice. Um, and I know that I can't help anybody by absorbing their pain. It's, that's not going to help them. So you have to come from a healthy-minded place in order to be able to help people and have the energy to continue to do it. And there was a time in my life where I could not have done this because I wasn't whole. I wasn't um, Mm. healthy spiritually or mentally. I wasn't whole. So it's so important that – but there are plenty of practitioners out there who burn out, who just are giving from a place they don't have. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I think, um, your point around, you know, needing to, to heal, um, what's within us as we go out and serve, it's just so, it's so important. Um, you know, the idea that we can only give to others that which we have filled up and offered to ourselves, I think is so important in thinking about, you know, how is it that we can give joy and love and rest and patience and peace um, if we don't have those things that we are holding that we're uh, filling up within our own well and my fear especially with these helpers as they go out and serve is that if they are giving from a place of burnout and exhaustion um, and just completely like there is nothing left to give my fear is what is it that they are giving when they're giving from that place of exhaustion and burnout and depersonalization, et cetera. Mm. Um, It's really, really important. And I know that it's not something that, you know, individual helpers, I know that we have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ways in which we see self-care popping up as like, just go get a mani-pedi and like, you'll be fine. And that is not 
um, you know, when I talk about self-care in this book, it is not just those quick fixes, but is that deep transformative healing work that we need to do in order to refill our wells um, while advocating for systems that support that healing too. I think that's really important that there is that both and of what it is that we can do and discerning what we can do to refill our well as we go out and serve others while also um, calling attention to the ways in which there are systems uh, that that need to promote that form of healing and to protect the helpers from those occupational hazards of burnout and secondary trauma and vicarious trauma and more. You are so right. It's so important. Um, and you're mm. right. What, what are people transferring onto other people when they're not really healthy themselves? But <clears throat> a lot of people go into these helper fields because they, it's the role they've always played. They've played it since childhood. They've been caretakers and mm-hmm. caregivers since childhood, yes. and they just continue to go on. Um, yes. But I find, you know, when people come to me, they generally come to me between the ages of early 40s to maybe 60, <clears throat> a time where they can't, they just can't deal with the pain anymore, where, where they've been able to push through it for so many years now all of a sudden they cannot do it anymore. So we all yeah. reach a point. We all reach this pinnacle, this, this peak where it gets mm-hmm. us and we just can't keep hiding it anymore. Do you see that? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that was, there was one, uh, one point in the chapter where I do, I, I talk about, uh, I actually refer to Richard Rohr and some of his writing again um, in writing about that idea that, you know, the things that worked for us all those years suddenly do not work for us in the ways that uh, they used to. And there is that point of just, I just can't keep pushing. I can't keep going and giving and serving and helping and doing and advocating and on and on and on and giving endlessly. Like if there is just a stopping point at which what used to work no longer does. And so that sounds like that's you know, with a lot of your clients that you work with. Um, but, you know, we, we see this with that, that idea of first half of life, second half, half of life kind of idea um, mm. that again, you just, you, you hit a point where mm. it just doesn't, it doesn't work. You just can't keep looking outward and doing, there has to be that shift to pay attention to what's happening inside. Um, yes, absolutely. To, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that um, validation. So you yeah. talk about the, the namaste um, theory in your book. Quite, there's quite a lot about it. So explain to us what the namaste theory is. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so this theory uh, was really born out of that research that I was talking about earlier about that intersection of spirituality and mental health and what was happening within my data um, with these large surveys of mental health care providers, as I found that the degree to which they're motivated to live out their faith was the top predictor of integrating their client's faith into mental health treatment. Um, That really, again, as I said earlier, it just really made me kind of have to rethink my data, my research, what was happening. And, um, And I realized it was, you know, one of those things that you just kind of getting ready early in the morning 
And it just kind of dawned on me, uh, this Hindi term, namaste, which um, literally, it literally breaks down to these two Sanskrit terms, which mean I bow, uh, nama meaning I bow, and te meaning to you. Um, I had loosely understood the term from uh, some yoga classes from, you know, years prior, but I wanted to more, I wanted to better understand it within the cultural roots of this term. And so I turned to A.K. Krishna Nambiar's book, um, Namaste, its philosophy and significance in Indian culture to better understand it. And he really affirmed this idea that, um, that there is a spiritual underpinning to this term. And so we see some more general translations these days, which mean, um, or which are the sacred in me recognizes the sacred within you, or the divine in me honors the divine in you, or the image of God within me um, sees the image of God within you. And so as I better understood this term um, with my humble understanding of it and perspective of it, um, I really saw this beginning to uh, make sense in light of the pattern that I was recognizing within my data. Again, as the practitioner was better attuned to the sacred within themselves, they appeared to be more attuned to the sacred within their client and more comfortable in talking about it in the sessions together. Uh, so that's those are kind of the roots of Namaste Theory. And I, I published it um, in an open access journal called Religions in 2017. Um, and then as I Again, as I lived into it, as I thought about it and contemplated it and talked with other helpers about it, I realized that this theory is not just for these mental health care providers, but that it really does translate to everyday helpers that we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, and that as everyday helpers are more attuned to the sacred within themselves, they are more attuned to the image of God or the sacred within those around them. They can offer that grounded presence uh, for others and not um, react perhaps with, you know, various beliefs or practices. Um, they just seem to have that more grounded, calming, peaceful presence to hold that space for those around them as they serve uh, in whatever capacity that they are uniquely wired and equipped to serve others. Absolutely. Not everybody, mm. um, not everybody is in touch with uh, their, you know, with religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs. Um, do you believe that mm -hmm. you cannot be an effective caregiver if you are not in touch with either of those things? No, I think um, that's a great question. So I will say within the data, um, it wasn't based on any particular religious tradition or um, or affiliation uh, from what we saw in the data that this finding kind of cut across those religious affiliations. And I don't know that it necessarily has to be a particular tradition or affiliation. Like I, I write um, a story in this book about a, uh, a prominent social work scholar who I had the privilege of getting to talk with and walk around this beautiful campus with. And she disclosed that um, she identified as atheist. And even in the conversation, she talked about wonder and awe and beauty and just the ways that she 
still recognized um, the gift of the day that we're given and the, the gift of the beauty around us. And she was still able to touch alongside or get in touch with that ability to marvel, um, uh, marvel at life and just the, the, the gift of another day. So I certainly, when I write about sacred in this book, um, I really do recognize that, you know, that that word may not be the most aligned for a number of folks and for different reasons, but I, I widen it for, uh, to support some inclusivity for those who may not identify with an Abrahamic faith tradition or who may not identify with any tradition or philosophy whatsoever, uh, but they can still recognize that there is something um, intangible that connects us. Okay. That makes sense. You know, I find that um, people in crisis often feel um, as if they are being punished by the very um, God or universe or whatever supreme being they believe in, they believe that their pain is a punishment. And I think it's at that point in which I try to bring it out because um, to try to explain how I feel what the bigger picture is, how, how I feel the universe works and how we're not punished. Um, it's part of our journey. Uh, but mm. have you come across people that have said that to you? They feel like they're being punished. Yeah. In, in fact, um, one of the, these are a couple of great researchers uh, who are actually at Baylor, um, Dr. Schroes and Bader, who write about these four images or four views of God that we tend to have. Um, and, and their research is woven into these pages in the idea that, um, and what they're saying is that basically these views of God are based on two spectrums, one judgment and one on engagement. So uh, it sounds like the client that you're talking about, like just the example there, would have more of an authoritative view of God, where God is highly engaged and highly judgmental. Um, whereas others may have a more benevolent view of God, which means that God is highly engaged but has low levels of judgment. Uh, we have other individuals who may view God as being critical, uh, where there's uh, low engagement and high judgment. And that actually might be the one that, that you're referring to. Um, but then we also see that there are folks who view God as being distant with low engagement and low judgment. So again, kind of going back to some of that complexity around religion and spirituality in general, this is one of those added layers where, you know, two individuals may identify with the exact same religious affiliation, but have completely different views of their higher power um, or God in this case. So, so no, we certainly see those differences. So I'm glad that you asked that question. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that, um, that, you know, they are, they did research around that and wrote about that because, yeah, I mean, I think that um, a lot of religions are, teach us that God is, is, is a judge. God is our judge. And, um, and that can really make, that can scare people sometimes. I mean, it's not my point of view, but it is, a lot of religions do um, emphasize that. 
that we are behaving here on earth for um, the judgment, our judgment day. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I can see, you know, why that some people would feel that um, they may be punished. They may be punished. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's. I would say too that if any of the listeners are interested in this, you can. Um, there, if you Google like America's Four Gods, there is a test that you can take online to kind of get a sense of like what your uh, view of God is. So that would be something for those who are listening who are interested could definitely check out. Okay, thank you. So, what are the seven sure. steps to combat caregiver burnout? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So as I, again, as I uh, wrote about Namaste theory and kind of lived into it um, and embodied it in a lot of ways, I recognized that there were these seven stages that began to kind of surface and bubble up that uh, really formed a roadmap for this process of seeking the sacred, of actually looking and tending to the, the sacred within ourselves. Um, these seven stages, I can read through them briefly and then kind of explain how they're all connected with one another. But, um, but the seven stages initially are speed, slow, steady, still, see, shift, and serve. So they all begin with the letter S. Um, and the way in which that they are connected with one another is that we, uh, as helpers, are invited to um, pay attention and wake up to the speed at which we are operating as we go out and serve others, uh, recognizing that many helpers are moving at such a fast pace to be able to keep up with all of the demands and needs around them. Um, but from that place of speed and recognizing our speed, we're then invited to slow down, um, to identify those steadying structures to help us stay in that slower pace. And then from those steadying structures, we're able to move into a place of stillness, which is so hard for helpers for many, many reasons. Um, it's There's a lot of shame messaging where stillness is, you know, that's not a good thing for us to be still or that maybe we've picked up um, implicit and explicit messages about it, uh, you know, being still as being selfish or anything like that. But we really need to learn how to be still so that we can then see um, the sacred within ourselves, Um, because until we are still, we can't fully see the sacred within ourselves. And as we see the sacred, we also see those shadows within us, too. So we need to be paying attention to that. And then from that place of seeing, um, we are then invited to shift with compassion toward ourselves and those around us. And then from that place, we can go out and serve others uh, with a a full well in recognizing that we are able to serve without strings attached, um, serve from abundance, and from that recognition that we are beloved as we are, and we don't need to go out and serve in order to receive or earn or achieve that belovedness. Um, so that's yes. kind of the arc 
of those seven stages. And I'll say okay. too that, you know, they're, they're written in a linear fashion because that helps obviously when you're reading and trying to understand and think through it, it helped me in making sense of it. But I do want to just note that these seven stages, like we will move through them at different points in our journey. Um, they, they really do have a flow to them in this order, but you know, there may be a season which we have a lot of demands, a lot of things that need our attention, and we may find ourselves back in that place of speed. And so we've got to, again, move through these stages um, to, to reconnect with that divine within ourselves. So, so anyway, so that's, yeah, that's, that's the journey of seeking the sacred and kind of how they're connected with one another. Okay. Um about um, you talk about humility in your book and um, you say that mm. it may not come naturally to us as helpers especially as we battle its opposite which is pride <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a lot of, people put, a lot of mm-hmm. people put pride and ego into their work and um, so what does it look like to practice humility yeah, that's a really good question. I think it is going to vary for each person in how they live into that and embody it. Um, I want to clarify when I'm talking about humility in this book, it is not self-abnegation or any form of putting ourselves down. Um, we're not saying like when you lean into humility, it's not saying I'm bad or I'm, I'm like nothing or I'm minimizing myself. Um, leaning into humility is putting ourselves in proper perspective alongside others and recognizing that we are no better and we are no worse than our neighbors, um, those around us, that the, that we are not the center of the universe, um, it does not revolve around us, um, but that we have limits as human beings. We cannot do everything for everyone all of the time that I think helpers may wrestle with sometimes thinking I can just keep going one more email, one more phone call, one more task or project or whatever. But um, the humility is recognizing that we have limits too. And so the practice of humility can look like um, simple things like learning to ask for help, uh, learning to, you know, ask a a partner or a friend, you know, to pick up, you know, groceries for us or something, or, uh, you know, remind us, hey, you got to go to bed, you know, when you're maybe tempted to keep working all through the night. Um, But, but I really think it's a one day at a time practice. I think that humility, um, again, it's that invitation to remember that we have limits, that, our life is finite. We, we're not going to live forever. And so the need to take care of our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our spirits is urgent. It's really important for us during this brief lifetime that we've been given. Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about or what you're talking about here really is self-love, self-esteem, self-care, self-appreciation, all those kind of things. And mm-hmm. You know, that's a difficult concept for some people when they've come from um, a place where they've been told it's not okay to take care of yourself, that you are responsible for taking care of others. This is the message that a lot of my clients come to me with. 
Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I get it because that was the message that I was given as a child. So mm. how, do we, how do we turn that around? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I know that you're right, that there are many, many folks who have picked up that message over the years. Um, and, you know, including you, I, I, I've heard similar messages over the years, too. And, you know, and those messages, they plant roots and they, you know, they dig deep into who we are. Um, so I think it really is that one day at a time practice. I think there are things um that we can do strategically to remind us uh, that, again, that we have limits and that we can't keep going and that it's not just on us to do everything for everyone, whether those things are some of what I mentioned or setting up, uh, you know, little reminders around our house. I mean, I'm someone who has lots of little notes around my house, just kind of as those, <laughs> those invitations to remember and just return to um, some wisdom that I need uh, or quotes or things like that. Um, But I think it really is, it is a sobering one day at a time practice of um, learning to prioritize yourself, learning and remembering that you are worth the love and care that you give to so many other people Um, reconnecting to the things or practices that remind you of your inherent worth. And I think there's a snowball effect to that where the more you recognize your inherent worth, the more you um, naturally want to protect that uh, and care for it. And, And it's not about, you know, boosting our ego, as you were referring to earlier and talking about ego and pride. It's not about saying like, again, like that, you know, selfishly, I'm going to take care of myself all of the time and everybody else is just going to figure it out. (laughs) But learning how to find those rhythms and routines and ways of tending to your body, mind, heart, and soul um, that really do align with that truth that, of remembering that we are beloved as we are and that there is nothing we can do uh, to be loved anymore in this moment. And there is nothing we can do to be loved any less in this moment. Um, And, you know, and it may involve some conversations with loved ones who we may have trained honestly over the years that I do all the helping and you receive all of the help. And we may need to have some of those hard conversations with our partners or friends or loved ones and saying, I really, I can't keep going at this pace. It's really causing a lot of harm for me. And if I keep trying to go at this pace and continue to try to give at this, uh, to this degree, I, I am going to burn out and I'm going to be no good to you or, or others. Um, I know that is so much easier said than done. So I really, I really do want to emphasize how each individual uniquely needs to navigate this within their own lives um, because they may have varying uh, sources of support or resources or access. And so there's a lot of unique layers that I want to be especially sensitive to or unique backgrounds and experiences. Um, But I think I'm hoping that some of those are at least an invitation. I know that 
in the book, I do talk quite a bit about mental health therapy and the importance of that. Um, and not only to heal from the layers experiences, I'll speak for myself, for my own background and journey, but also for current things that I'm wrestling with and navigating. And, um, and then in those spaces of, of working with my licensed mental health care provider, I am, I'm able to kind of have a better assessment of, you know, what are, what, where are my limits? What can I do? What can't I do? How much capacity do I have? Where do I need to be paying a special careful attention to certain areas within my life? Um, and so that would be one really important thing. Another thing that I do, at least, you know, again, going back to the humility piece is um, I have a, I spend some time each week looking at my week and um, paying very careful attention to kind of what's coming up within the next week or couple weeks or month so that I don't overcommit myself and then continue that perpetual burnout of taking on more than I realistically can do. And that's hard because I want to say yes to everybody for everything. Um, most of the, actually I should say most of the time. Um, but it is hard because it's much easier for me to say yes than it is to say no because of how I've, uh, because of the messages that I've picked up over the years, kind of going back to what you were talking about before. So right. I hope those are a few a few things to consider that are helpful. No, they truly are. They truly are. Thank you. What are some practices that can help us to be still? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the stillness chapter, um, well, one, I would say that paying attention and following through those first, the three chapters before that, like paying attention to our speed and recognizing, you know, the pace that we're going and, and why, um, and beginning to move through the practices related to slowing down and then identifying those steadying structures that help us to be operated at a slower pace. I think a lot of those are really important, but within the still chapter, um, I write pretty specifically about the practice of centering prayer, which is my absolute favorite practice. Um, it's a lot like meditation, and so I would emphasize that, you know, if, if meditation feels like a better fit for you, that is totally fine. Um, but one of the practices I most emphasize around stillness is centering prayer and, and what, why it's so important is this practice invites us to surrender to a higher power, um, to let go of control, um, to, uh, surrender to whatever will happen within that time and remember that it is out of our control and it's none of our business and that is so hard uh, to lean into, I think, as a helper. Um, but this practice of centering prayer, it, it allows us to, we pick a word, um, to remember to return to our breath um, and to return to the present moment when our mind wants to just chatter, 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 um, but to then drop back into that inner space and surrender that control. Uh, but centering prayer can be something that is practiced within two minutes or five minutes, but it's often encouraged to be about 20 minutes. Um, and that's what I do to start my day each morning. Um, and, I, and I have some resources about the practice of centering prayer within the book. And certainly there are others. I talk about the be still prayer um, and um, 
stilling that or paying attention to, um, you know, that inner critic and practicing non-judgmental self-observation, recognizing that there are lots of ways in which many of us have that inner critic that is just um, on us all day, but learning to move through our day, tune into what's going on within our inner landscape and to to slowly detach from that inner critic and to watch it and be mindful of it without attaching to it, um, I think is something that's really important to help us move into that place of stillness too. Yes. I, I want to read the um, the four steps that you put in here for um, what you write in your book about cultivating stillness of the heart through centering prayer. So first you say, yeah. through the sacred word as the symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. And then the second one, sitting comfortably with eyes closed, settle briefly and silently introduce the sacred word as the symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. And then the third is when engaged with your thoughts, including body sensations, feelings, images, and reflections, return ever so gently to the sacred word. At the end of the prayer period, remain in silence with eyes closed for a couple of minutes. So that's how you that mm. we do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so thank you for, for elevating that. And I want to make sure like that I give credit to um, the center for, or I'm sorry, the contemplative Out, outreach. So folks can learn more about centering prayer at contemplativeoutreach.org. And that's where those, those four steps really originated from. So they do a beautiful job really unpacking it. Um, Father Thomas Keating writes quite a bit about it as well as others, but it is, it is just, and, and you're not going to find something right in that moment. There won't be this big, you know, awareness right away, but it is this, low work that over time you begin to recognize, oh, I have more patience for this thing because of this practice. Um, because you learn how to respond rather than react by being able to hold all of the tension that is surfacing during those daily practices of centering prayer. And you also have in here um, to do um, an Ill, uh, evening stillness practice. Mm -hmm. you do that? That's right. I do do that. Yes. So, um, so I write about gratitude, the practice of gratitude that for over many, many years, um, I've, I've learned about the impact that it has on our mental health and the, the positive impact it has on our mental health. Um, but, and, and when I talk about gratitude, I'm talking about this as being like a regular practice, not something that we flippantly throw out as a way to spiritually bypass, you know, well, I'm grateful at least, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but this regular daily practice of gratitude each evening where for me, I'll hit, you know, as soon as my head hits the pillow each night and I go to bed, um, I will just start to go through and be in practice gratitude and say the things that I am thankful for um, within that day that could easily be things that I take for granted or, you know, forget about, but things like, you know, clean water and a refrigerator and a roof over my head and the health that each of my family members have and um, our neighborhood and our friends, et cetera, et cetera. Like I, 
you know, I'm really intentional about that gratitude practice because it really helps put in perspective all of the good that I have in my life so that I'm not hustling for that goodness um, as I go about my days in in those day-to-day ways that I serve others. Uh, It really does that gratitude practice very strategically fills my well up um, so that I have that as I go out to serve the next day. And you talk about practices that help us serve, um, and and you were um, one of them is journaling. Journaling is really important for us. How do you um, yes. How do you suggest that that helps us? Yes, journaling is such an important practice um, that I have found for me along my journey, and I've heard very similar to others. Um, we see it in the research that again that it is a, a great practice for um, helping us. But for me, with the way that I weave it into serve is that it's, well, first I'll say the way that it looks for me is each week, at least once a week, I sit down with my journal and I just dump out everything that I'm hearing within myself. Um, All of those conversations that I had, uh, the the hard messages, the joyful moments, the um, experiences, they, you know, we carry those within us, within our bodies. And so for me, slowing down um, and journaling about those experiences, learning to discern what is mine to carry versus what are the things that, you know, I just picked up from another's experience throughout the week. Uh, And so I can set that down and not continue to carry it um, while still being able to have empathy, but not continue to carry it within myself. That practice each week has been so foundational in allowing me to really sift through what is mine to carry or do or what isn't. And I think weaving it into that as a practice within the serve chapter is it allows me to better discern, again, what is mine to do as I go out and serve others um, versus what isn't mine to do that I may habitually or unconsciously adopt and think is mine to do. But, But that journaling practice really allows me to kind of get it all out onto a page so that, um, you know, I can better discern how to move forward as I help others. And you do that once a week rather than daily. So you sort of accumulate the week correct. and then write and then it down. Okay. I mean, that's, that's easy correct. And to do. Some, yeah, and it doesn't have to be for a long time. I mean, some some weeks I'll spend a little bit longer. Other weeks it may be shorter. Um, some weeks I may journal a few times if there's a lot going on, but um, but this, this journaling practice is something that it, it gives me that, that space of solitude as well so that I'm not attuned to what others need from me, but I can really deeply connect with just with myself um, in that space, which I think is really important for us as helpers. I think it is, too. Um, I know there's probably people listening that say, wow, that's a whole lot of time for self-focus. <laughs> Um, but, but, but it's, it's, it's really, it really is, it's primary, it's important. We, we really do have to do that. And once you begin a practice where you, um, focus on yourself first, then you see how much you actually have to give from it. Uh, you know, it, it's the opposite of what people think. 
it's not selfish. Yes. What it does is it fills you up and allows you to to have all this love and care that spills from you. Yes, I I wholeheartedly agree. I think it really does allow you to fill up um, while you're engaging in these practices. And one thing just um, for listeners who who are wondering, like, how do you have time to do all of those? Um, I do write in the speed chapter about paying attention to the things that we do that um, really drain us. And I think as we become more, we, we become more cognizant of those, those things those, that we do mindlessly that just really suck our time and attention and energy. And we more intentionally give our time and energy to those practices that fill us up. That really does allow us to give that, that attention that we need to the practices that support us by becoming more aware of the things that are just um, draining us. If, I mean, they're, they're really draining, like those habitual practices like scrolling or, you know, spending not too much time on social media or um, maybe binge watching TV shows for long periods of time, like within short periods of time, that's okay, you know, but when we're doing it excessively and without even thinking, you know, I think that's where we get invited to think, okay, what could I be doing with my time that'll fill me back up and um, allow me to better serve others so that I'm not serving from that place of burnout. I think that's where that invitation really lies. Yes, you're right. You're right. So um, Holly, we're talking about your book today, The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself so you can see it in others. Um, Holly, do you have a website that we can visit? I do. Yes. Folks can visit me at hollyoxhandler.com or I'm on any social media at hollyoxhandler um, and they can get links to my podcast through my website or um, I have a newsletter on Substack that's uh, substack.hollyoxhandler.com or they can find it through my website as well. So and I send out a monthly newsletter with resources on this intersection of faith and mental health and a whole lot more. And is that what you cover on your podcast as well? Yes. Yeah. So the podcast is all on the intersection of faith and mental health. Um, and we bring, I mean, our, uh, we bring on um, faith leaders, researchers, mental health care providers, uh, those who have navigated this intersection personally or walked alongside a loved one. Um, pretty, we have a pretty diverse uh, group of folks who we've brought on the show over the last six uh, seasons that we've been doing it. So it's a, I, I love that I get to do that work with my friend Robert Vore. So it's a lot of fun. So you do it together with Robert? We do, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a message that you want to leave us with? Oh, I love that. It's a beautiful question. Um, I, I would say that my hope um, for our listener who is listening today or our listeners listening today is just that they, uh, that they receive the invitation to pay attention to their inner landscape as they go out and serve others that they remember that they are beloved as they are, that there's nothing they need to do to uh, earn any more love or be loved any less, Um, and to remember that their life is a precious 
gift and their life is worth tending to, to the best of their ability um, as they go out and serve others. I hope that this, uh, this book, The Soul of the Helper, which is available where, wherever folks buy their books, I hope that it offers uh, an, a, a roadmap that is gentle and kind and compassionate um, for our helpers as they discern and go out and serve others. So, right. that, I mean, that and, would be my big take. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, no, I think that is a beautiful message. I love it. <clears throat> I love mm-hmm. I love the fact that you say that we are beloved. Um, no matter what we do, we are just, we can't make it better or worse. We just are. Uh, I think that's a really, really strong message to leave us with. So, well, thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for being thank my you. guest today. It's been really interesting. And uh, it's a topic that is really niche. I mean, it's, this is not something that a lot of people talk about. So it's really interesting, and that's why I had you on, because I like to touch on these kind of topics that people rarely dive into. But you really have dived in, you know, dived into this topic mm. and um, it's really worthwhile. So thank you very, very much for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me on the show, Randy. I'm just so honored and delighted to know you and grateful for the work that you're doing as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great, great day. Take care. Thank you, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.